1: Hello, friends, and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Avril Earls, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Margot Gail Backus and Joe Valenti about their 2020 book, Writing the Unspeakable, The Child Sex Scandal, and Modern Irish Literature. Margot and Joe, welcome to the show. Hey. Hi. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Yeah. Margot Backus is a Morris Professor of English at the University of Houston. And Joseph Lenti, Joe, is a UB distinguished professor of English and Disability Studies at the University at Buffalo. So, Margot, Joe, what brought you to the topic of the child sex scandal in modern Irish literature?
0: Sure. Um, well, I have been. Uh, I started out being trained really in Irish literary studies, and uh, I went right into, um, you know, modern Irish literary studies with an interest in um, what at the time would have just been gay, lesbian, you know, writing in Irish studies and in Irish literature. Um, and right from the outset, very I knew that there was, you know, Joe Valenti, who w- was pioneering... The whole field of queer theory, queer theoretical approaches to Joyce. So I just want to say that that this was an opportunity for me uh, getting to write this book was really arriving for me. Um, but my my first book was on heterosexuality um, and the sort of creation of the nuclear family and the advantages that that gave to colonial. The, the capacity to extend um, uh, colonial settlements and to hold identity in place to create the irrational situation of people who leave themselves to continue to be British, whether they're living, wherever they're living. Um, and then only did I gradually, uh, by my second book, I had transitioned into Joyce studies Um, and then this was my third book, which in many ways brought together the trope of child sacrifice was, um, in Anglo Irish Gothic was the first thing I looked at in my first book. The second book was on James Joyce and scandal. And so, um, it really worked very, very well for me to then go to a book that was about Irish sex scandals involving children and to write it with Joe, yeah. uh, I um,
2: I began I began actually as a romanticist. Um, uh, my dissertation proposal in Romanticism is probably still on file at my PhD given uh, governing university, but I switched uh, at the last minute because I actually had a, a, a fully formed idea uh, for uh, a dissertation on Joyce, which became my first book, James Joyce and the Problem of Justice which was the, you know, what I wanted to do in that book was to articulate in a way what had two strands of Joyce studies that were out there. One that were out there and had recently emerged in the 1980s. One was, one was a, uh, you know, a sex gender investigation of Joyce and one was a post-colonial investigation of Joyce and justice was about articulating those two. Um, and I grew, got interested in that point um, in um, in how those things, how how sexuality and colonialism came together, and that's a lot of what my second book, which was um, on um, Bram Stoker's Dracula and and Irishness, was about, and how the vampire coalesced um, these issues, and and then um, I got interested. Through by way of doing uh, queer studies, investigation of Joyce, um, and and basically, I I think fair to say, calling out the Joyce world for its heteronormativity, which it which it clearly was about in the nineteen eighties and nineties. Uh, I grew interested going through that. I got grew interested in in masculinity studies and and started pondering why Irish studies generally didn't really take much account of masculinity as a, as a gender, but let it pass unmarked, which seems to me to be the very, the, the very seal of patriarchy is to do that. Um, and so wrote a book on, on, um, manhood in, in 19th and 20th century Ireland. Uh, and, um, it was through as, as Marco reminded me uh, the last time we did something along these lines, it was, it was by way of Joyce that we came to this larger project, that we were invited to um, write an essay in a collection on Dubliners. Um, and we chose as our story an encounter one of several stories actually in Dubliners that are about um, the possibility or the reality or the specter of child sexual abuse, uh, and once we sort of came together and and uh, wrote about that story uh, we on the one hand, I think we we came to the conclusion that that um, we made a we made a good writing team that we had a we had a method uh, we, that 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 worked for us. Um, and at the same time, we realized that this question of child sexual abuse that we were interested in within within Joyce world was of course this huge deal going on in in Ireland uh, you know uh, particularly by way of its various institutional uh, institutional enactments um, and we began to just put together uh, uh, <laughs> Put together a reading list for ourselves, oh, this book might work, this book might work, this book might work. Um, that reading list exceeded the reading list that is in the book itself that is that there are just too many novels um, uh, which testifies to exactly how grave and pervasive the problem of child sexual abuse was in Ireland and and how how aware a certain segment of uh, the Dublin and and large, more largely, the Irish intelligentsia uh, was not this problem, and um, and so we started writing our book. And um, um, I think it's fair to say, and I think Margaret will agree with me, we are really pleased with the way the book came out. Yeah, <laughs> we just I, are.
0: <laughs> I want to say that um, that I was reflecting uh, to a person who he was going to read our book for his own work and, um, you know, is Irish. And he said, unfortunately, there's some of the things that you're writing about, you know, in my own family history. And I think he just wanted to read something of mine. I think that was what the conversation was about. And I said, don't necessarily read this book if, you know, you haven't Done, you know, some of the work of, of healing whatever has happened to you, and what I said that I thought was really interesting to hear myself say is I said, I think that the the thing about our book is that it's it's actually correct, it's right, and I think it's going to take even me a, a whole lifetime to fully absorb the implications of that, let alone how long it's going to take, you know, anyone else to. Like, I'm just starting to see this book as a very slow burn because it actually pulls together things that are held apart by very strong, almost magnetically, whatever you call it, when magnets are turned in the opposite way so they repel each other, that there's this kind of anti-magnetic force field that demands these things not be put together. So, yeah, I love this book. I think this. I think it's amazing to have written something that I'm going to be myself learning to live with for the rest of my life. That I think
2: that's. Amazing. I think that. I do think that that speaks to what I would have said if someone asked me what what is the diff. What was the difficulty in writing this book? And the difficulty in writing this book was never intellectual. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the intellectual component of it was always. Fairly easy and 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 liberating. What was difficulty was the emotional, the emotional uh, aspect of it. I I said at one point to Margot in the middle of the process, now I know what people who work on like the history of Nazi Germany must feel like to have to, you know, to be working on this material that is so viscerally disturbing um, and 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 more than disturbing um, and to, and to be trying to work through it. And it's, it, it's, it can be, it was an, it's emotionally quite fraught. Um, and of course, in this case, in the case of child sexual abuse, particularly the way we frame child sexual abuse, um, the way we frame child sexual abuse makes it all the more because we frame child sexual abuse as, and this I think is the paradox, is that people look away because they identify too closely not because it's 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 other. They want to other it as much as possible, but because child sexual abuse is grounded in all of our family romances and the fact that we become human subjects through through being sexualized in a family romance, right? And that, that that's what is tapped into and exploited in child sexual abuse. We're all interested, as we put it put it in our book. We're all interested in that original sense of interested, interested, being between. We're all in that space to some degree or another, and and so that 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 I think increases the level of difficulty for for the writing of it, but also as Margaret suggested to her to her colleague or, or friend, or, or uh, the, the, it could increase the difficulty in in the in the reading of it. Right? I mean, it's it's yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think the, you're already getting at this, right? At the heart of the book is this argument about how we can see and understand the broader culture of child sex, abu- sex abuse in modern Ireland through the fiction of the 20th century. So, but before we get there, what is this culture of child sex, sex abuse that you're sort of building on? Well, I think
0: Joe's uh, final section of the introduction probably speaks to that as well as anything we've ever written Um, and what I'll just say, but um, then hope Joe will be willing to talk more about it, is that the, that what that culture is, is for one thing, it's so much more pervasive than, than, instances of rape or molestation or, you know, the kind of classic horror show, you know, genital, you know, um, transgression of, of children's sexual boundaries. Um, and I think that really became very, very important was the insight that a kind of you know, profoundly suppressed and denied, and numbed, and invisible um, eroticism that had become very, very toxic, and that was blindly, you know, being displaced. I don't know, Joe. Joe will tell me whether or not "displaced" is the correct term because he's always uh, telling me my, you know, whatever he's always correcting my psychoanalytic terminology, which is very helpful because I need someone to do that. But anyway, so it, but it's being channeled into a a broad range of forms of child abuse. That sexual child abuse becomes child abuse.
2: I think that, yeah, I think that the culture of child abuse, I think we might say works, works like this children are idealized in Ireland, particularly in Ireland. And that idealization is fueled by a current of denied and displaced uh, eroticization, right? But the very very eroticization that fuels the idealization of children also means that individual children or in groups of children are, are disposable. They are useful, they are instrumentalized, right? You idealize someone to instrumentalize them. You don't idealize them, you never idealize somebody for, for, for their own sake. You always idealize them whether you know it or not, because you have a purpose. That purpose is largely unconscious, and the purpose can be manifold. And in the case of Ireland, I think it was the idealization of children served manifold instrumental purposes, but all of which, you know, were grounded in libidinal energy that was being being infused into the image of the child, and it was turning the child, it's him, her, self, their selves, into more or less disposable items. Now the culture, I want to say one thing that goes beyond what Margot was saying, and that is that I think that the culture of child abuse is as much about, is as much a culture of omission as it is a culture of commission, Right. It's not just the abuse. It's the connivance. It's the it's that, you know, Foucault has this great thing, the difference between killing people, uh, letting live and letting die. Right. And so so I think that one of the things that happens in, in, in child sex abuse is in Ireland, in this culture that makes it a culture is that there's a letting be a letting be of the child sexual abuse, a letting be that's fueled by denial, by averting one's eyes, by not speaking up by suspecting but never going further than that, right? All of the things that make child sexual abuse so profoundly disturbing for people allows them to basically participate in it by omission, by, by, by not standing up, by not saying, by not revealing, by not disclosing, by not prosecuting, by not convicting, It's a whole line of things. So I think that that's, I think that that's important. And the reason, you know, I, I want to say Margo's right about how, and this is a point, uh, not a disagreement between Margo and I, but I would say a different emphasis. M- Margo is, is very taken with, um, I think her name is McGuire, who, uh, who, uh, I forgot her first name. I'm sorry. Mar- Mar- I, was, I was thinking Molly and I'm thinking that's not right. Okay. Um, who, who, who argues that, that um, child sexual abuse in Ireland has been kind of anchored by institutional abuse and particularly by Catholic church abuse. But Maguire's argument is that's a wrong way to think about it, that it's, it's far more pervasive than that um, and, and, um, and that it shouldn't be, and, and I agree it shouldn't be restricted to that, but I do think that the Catholic church is the cultural dominant in the child sexual abuse culture, right? It's what it's what was a, a sufficiently powerful institution, sufficiently powerful to keep it under wraps, and it was the institution that once it was disclosed, made it a distinctively Irish thing, right? Um, and so, so I, I do think that there is there is a, you know an important place in in our understanding of this cultural. Um, a culture of child sexual sexual abuse. That there's there's a strongly religious church oriented component to that culture. That and and Mark, when I talk about this, I think um, uh, in in certain in certain of the uh, individual chapters, the importance of understanding, and certainly in the Tana French chapter, the importance of understanding theocracy as a as a as a, a bulwark of this culture of child sexual abuse. Are you okay there, Margo? You,
0: oh, Mar- yeah.
2: Margo's on the move. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> there was a leaf blower.
2: Oh, I see.
0: And I oh. did not want it to interfere with what you were saying. I'm so sorry.
2: Oh, that's okay. That's all right. It's, you're kind of in the dark now, though. I know. Um, well,
0: you know. that's okay because this isn't a visual
1: medium.
2: No, that's true. Suppressed. Okay, okay. Audio.
1: <laughs> um, so building on that, one of the things that I thought was really interesting that you point out in the introduction, I think it is, is that the church and the state sort of dissociate the moral well-being of Irish children from the actual physical well-being of the child. And I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about that. More go. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah,
0: that for me was really the the... Moment of rupture for that I perceived, and I I wanted to add to what Joe was just saying how um, the extraordinary efficacy of the the churches. I, I agreed that it was the church that coordinated everything. So I don't I and I don't you know I think I think Moira's work was. You know, just thinking about things at a different level, just pragmatically, um, you know, were people and, you know, it perhaps the Althusserian distinction, right, between ideological state apparatus and the ideological um, or sorry, state apparatus versus ideological apparatus, Um would come in useful here, right? Um, the question, you know, or Fennel makes the distinction between, you know, the, the, the way people are largely controlled hegemonically within the metropole, but at the colonial periphery or, you know, controlled at the butt end of a gun. And, you know, all, I think Mo- what Moira was saying, and I think this was quite important because she was confronting you know, the Irish people with like, the church didn't make you do this. You know, you had, there were advantages to be had by doing this. And so, and I think, so th- I think that's really important um, that it, it, that, that by organizing people's desires in a certain way, which the church had access to from a very early age, um, it, it, It organized people's, um, it, it validated certain, certain interests that people had in a, you know, in a shifting and modernizing, um, economy. And so I think, you know, basically there's plenty of blame to go around, um, And but I I found that moment of rupture in 1913. To me, it's just, you know, during the um, the lockout in 1913, when I when Dublin's business owners got together and, you know, most of these these, you know, captains of industry who got together and decided to deliberately starve Ireland's poorest and most vulnerable workers en masse until they all signed a promissory note that they would not ask for a living wage. They would not organize to receive livable compensation. Um, It's just extraordinary, right? That happened in 1913. The famine, the great famine is from you know, 1845 to 49, basically, right, when half of the population of Ireland disappears, about 1 million to emigration, about 1 million die. It's a astonishing, you know, I don't know how it stacks up against other terrible things that have befallen other populations, but you know, it's, it's extraordinary. Half the population is gone. Um, the damage to the psyches of those who remain is enormous. And by 1913, the church is able to openly advocate for the systematic starvation of Irish people to control them, to assert political control over them and come out in favor of children dying in the ditches. That is then becomes a trope of what a good parent, a good Irish parent is willing to do. They're able to turn the famine around and treat dying in the famine as marked principally by a willingness to do, to die for your faith. So,
2: which is, which is why, I mean, I I just want to say it, it, this isn't really, I mean, this is the rhetoric is moral well being versus physical well-being but this isn't really a question of protecting children's moral well-being no right it's it, it the, the truth is it's it's a it's a question rather of enforcing enforcing a faith and enforcing it at a level at, at an age when you are in fact preempting a child's moral capacity Yes. Right, and so far from so far from sacrificing the child's physical well being to the child's moral well being, you are in fact sacrificing the child's physical well being to on the altar of denying or preempting the child's moral capacity. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's it's very important um, um, to understand the extent to which Catholic indoctrination in Ireland and here in America has been about preempting moral capacity under the sign of advancing morality.
0: Well, and since Joe so, um, so usefully <laughs> mentioned America, I will say I, I, it's very, very important to say that what is happening right now, this minute, especially in Florida, but also in Texas, um, is the vanguard of a new capture of precisely or a recapture of precisely that capacity to appropriate children's whole subjectivity by, you know, there's a rescandalization of all these categories that, you know, we've made enormous progress on, opening up uh, in the United States as neutral categories of identity, neutral um, and protected civic identities that people might have, right? Neutral public ways that a person might show up out in the world that were protected. And these are all being pushed back into stigmatized categories that cannot be destigmatized by state law for young children. And mm-hmm. every time I hear the argument made, especially coming out of DeSantis's big, fat, ugly mouth, that um, you know, that this is about the sexualization of children, that that, you know, that allowing children to have information if they ask if the issue comes up about transgender identity, about same-sex arrangements, familial arrangements, age-appropriate stuff that they certainly know about heterosexual people, that all of that is grooming and sexualizing children. No. Who is grooming and sexualizing children is obviously those who are attempting to limit children's capacity to understand or find out about anything that exists in the world except heterosexuality. And if that can be successfully silenced for, you know, um enough for a long enough time, it it we are it's how the Catholic Church did what it did. And it's and it's terribly bad for children. It's incredibly um, and it you know, it promotes a kind of systematic shutting down of empathy toward children and um, and and tr- and treatment of children as means to an end as tools uh, for political ends
2: and and one of the reasons that Joyce is so important in the book and in the history of the literary representation of, of- child sexual abuse is precisely because he had the closest relationship to the church and, and understood in a story like the sisters, how, how grooming operates, right? Um, grooming operates through a silencing. And that's exactly, I mean, the, the, the story of the sisters is is basically is based on, on ellipsis. I mean, it's based on the punctuation sign of ellipsis as the, the symbol of everything that's going on in the story, which is, is talking, not talking, breaking off conversation right at the moment when something could be revealed, when something, when something might be disclosed that would reveal uh, uh, a problem, right? Um, and, 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 if, and if Dubliners is, is as, a, as a whole is a lot about silences... Right um, about things being brought to the 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 edge of speech, and speech not occurring. Right, so so it, it's really interesting. When you think about it that every every part of the reason Joyce is, is so important is that that there's a there's an idea in Irish literature that Joyce casts an inescapable and burdensome shadow on the future of Irish literature because of the monumental nature of the work that he produced. But within this one area, I'm, I, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But within this one area, it's certainly not true. Within the area of the representation of child sexual abuse, Joyce proved to be tremendously enabling for subsequent, subsequent, Novelists interested in that, which is why, like the people Kate O'Brien, Edna O'Brien, Anne Enright, these these are people who are Keith Richards, these people are huge fans of Joyce's work and incorporate Joyce's work in what they're doing through systematic patterns of illusion precisely around the the, the issue of child sexuality and sexual initiation and, and sexual abuse. Right. Um, and so I I think that Joyce, Joyce, Joyce built precisely on this question of the, the, the force of silence, the force of the pressure of the unsaid, um, and, and the way in which silence operates as a, as an, an actual thing, um, that is working to to advance a problem, to deepen or exacerbate a problem, is really interesting that that becomes a kind of um, uh, germinal space for talking about a problem in subsequent in subsequent novels, right? Um, uh, so, th- very interesting, I think, place that Joyce occupies as a, as a as a kind of a wellhead of, of modern Irish literature on this topic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And I just, I guess I want to put in a plug for Eve Sedgwick's privilege of unknowing, you know, as um, having mapped out how some of that works. And I, I, you know, we, we cite that work, but um, you know, I think one of the things our book does that I feel really proud of is identify how literature can be a privileged site for pushing back against that, because um, it, it, that really was the accusation that I was leveling against DeSantis and against Greg Abbott, um, you know, is that the kind of loud, Braying insistence like we don't under, we don't know about this. We don't understand it. We don't, you know, that isn't a thing, you know, just this insistence, especially I think transgender unknowing, you know, has been a very, very powerful driving force that is pushing backwards in a number of ways, but also, you know, this extraordinary, like, promotion of critical race studies as a code word for a body of knowledge that doesn't exist you know a body of 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 false things that if if a if a piece of information or a mode of analysis or a body of knowledge fits within under that rubric that it is by definition and a, you know, a, a wrong rubric or a, you know, it's, it's stuff that it's just wrong. It's just labeled wrong, which is a way of creating silence, you know, in, on a mass scale, just like anything that looks or could be labeled as this kind of knowledge is not valid knowledge. And period. The, yeah.
2: The are in, in and <laughs> One of the things that I think I I was most important about the book was the understanding of that. It tries to provide, and I think does provide of the specific function of the literary as opposed to various other kinds of discourses around a scandal like child sexual abuse or indeed any scandal. Um, and I think that, that, one one of the things that we argue is that literature is a kind of imminent theory right that is that it that it it tells a story and in the telling of the story it provides a kind of body of knowledge about the incidents that it is retelling right so it's it's, it's so it's neither it's neither a theory in the in the in the sort of canonical sense of that term providing a broad generalizable explanation nor but n- neither is it simply an account of events it is an account of events that is already imbe- has already embedded certain kinds of possibilities of explanation in the event itself and it, it does so in, in doing so it, it basically um, uh, bridges the gap between specificity. This is something that's happening only here, and generalizability. This is something you can carry away and make a, a, a template for understanding a a larger, uh, more widespread phenomenon. Right. It also, and it's important in terms of child sexual abuse. It also allows for a certain level of deniability. That is, you don't, it, it's, it's not documented, so it's not making accusations, right? But neither is it, but neither is it not implying things, right? And, and, so, and so you can take it as specifically about somebody, some institution, some, something, you know, abroad in the land. Uh, you don't need to, Right, um, you can say it's just this particular situation it has it has the kind of gravity of particularity, while it's, at the same time it has the uh, the the motor the energy of generalizability. Um, and I and
0: think. It, no, sorry, I think central to that is I remember Joe the first time you talked about identification that it is a convention, you know, specifically of you know, prose fiction, right, that the reader identifies um, with the, you know, central character. And what that... I think that's just really central to why fiction can do what it does.
2: When you pick up a novel, you identify with the very possibility of identifying. Right. That's what you if do. We you
0: can't recognize... <laughs> if we couldn't recognize the world and the person we were reading about, then we, you know, the whole fictional, um, enterprise would fall apart. So the very fact that we can identify, we read to identify, and that means we are put in a different psychic relationship to facts that are otherwise, um, increasingly, certainly in the Irish context, were increasingly skewed and increasingly distorted um, in very, very destructive ways. But fiction was this one space where the possibility of realigning the, the, the subject to, relative to these events and to be able to look at them And recognize them and say, yes, that is correct. I recognize that this is. I really believe that one of the things that over the course of writing this that seems really important to me is that Ireland's respect for its own literary production and for its own authors was one of the saving graces, that that was a very important part of the capacity to shift back out of this, this death-like trance, you know, that, um, that people were really, really stuck in because, you know, if, if a per, to, to, if a person's sexuality is damaged and shut down, and if I am taught from a very young age that my sexuality is aligned with the devil, aligned with evil, And then, you know, I mean, it's such a smart way to set up an ideology, right? Because if you teach children who are not yet sexually mature that, you know, these feelings are are diabolical and they're terrible and they're evil, then, of course, when they hit puberty, they will suddenly realize that they and probably they alone because of the big no talk rule and all the ignorance and, and and no and you know, not being allowed to talk that they are under assault in a terrible and shameful way as Joyce describes in Portrait of the Artist, you know, from these these terrible things. So to teach a person to hate their own sexuality is you really have them in such a such a deeply negative way and and that means that all that energy that they are that they are not allowing themselves to feel or that they are at war with can be rechanneled, you know, into, in other ways. So yeah, I think fiction was an amazing resource for, for Ireland. But really. it,
2: yeah. it, it, it's the complexity, the complexity that fiction allows in the representation mm-hmm. of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. That, it, that there, there's a kind of anti-reductivity anti-reduct, to all of these books. And, and as a result, to be honest, I think our book is challenging. I mean, that is, it, it it works out some very complicated logic around subject formation and and sexualization. Um, some very complicated logic that is it is at work in these novels, right? And is centered on the 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 the, the language that the novels use Mm -hmm. to tell the story. Right? Um and 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 that that complexity is is conveyed, not simply conveyed to the reader, but the the, it, it, it operates to have the reader re experience their own relationship to sexual tutelage. To, to the formation of their sexuality by forces outside themselves, right? Um, and that's, that's the, the key element of, of, the, of, of what is the theoretical concept at the center of the book, which is Jean Laplanche's idea of the enigmatic signifier a signifier that is sexualizing, that is eroticizing precisely because it's indefinitely. So, um, um, precisely because it's seductive rather than coercive. Um, but that it, that it provides, provides the kind of, uh, affective fuel of subject formation, but that in this literature, it is, it is precisely the magnet, um, that allows the reader to, be in an analogous position to the characters in the novels, as the characters are in their in a diegetic sense being being represented in this relationship to child sexual abuse or at least to child sexualization. The reader has is is re-experiencing that problematic by their relationship. To the enigmatic signifiers and each one of these books has like this enigmatic signifier right like the x in ridgeway um or schmarmarie in in um uh, uh kate o'brien's uh,
0: although i want to put a pin in kate o'brien and make sure that i feel like i i feel that chapter is it, it is um in a sort of class by itself in the book so i just want to talk about that in a minute but
2: fair fair enough but but one of the things that it's that it certainly has is a particular enigmatic signifier that operates throughout the novel um to capture in that imminent imminent theoretical way uh what the narrative is unfolding right so yeah um each of the i mean i think that uh i think that each of these novels has that yes. um and i think that i mean uh, uh, margo may be maybe right about kate o'brien's being in a in a different space than than the others uh, i i don't know that we couldn't make that argument for each of the others in 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 some respects i certainly would make that argument for the gathering um um but i do think that one of the things that the book actually does, which I don't think we intentionally did this. I really don't. I, I don't think this happened intentionally at all, but it did happen. Um, which is if you look at the, at the, at the, at the chapter by chapter Joyce, while it's institutional, the, the, the questions of sexual initiation are very localized at the personal level. When you get to Kate O'Brien, now they're localized within a small community, this community of the common. Then, when you get to Edna O'Brien, they're localized within a regional community, right? Um, when, when you get to Keith Ridgeway, you know, they're localized within a larger regional community of Dublin. When you get to Tana French, they're a still larger uh, community of Dublin, its suburbs, and what its suburbs stand for, right? Um, and And when you get to the gathering, now we have an intergenerational thing going back to, um, to, so there's a kind of, and as I say, I don't, I don't, I I don't think Margo and I can take credit for this.
0: Oh, no, Um, I totally did that purposefully.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think there's the, 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 the the book widens in scope as it proceeds, which is, whether we did it intentionally or not, I'll say this. It's perfect because one of the, one of the burdens of the argument is that national ethnic geopolitical stuff has as its cellular basis, right? Subject formation and the sexualization of individual subjects. And so the form of the book, and once again, uh I don't think we did this intentionally, but the form of the book plays out that proliferation from this strand of sexual DNA to the much larger picture of of, of ethnic and national life as the chapters proceed.
1: You know, Let's talk okay. about the chapters. Let's talk about the novels. We've got, we're running out of time here. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, and we've we've sort of got the introduction and, and the Joyce chapter. Um, and I would love to just say a few words about um specifically about Kate O'Brien and the Land of Spices, because I do feel like that chapter is that if, for one thing, we moved in that chapter, um, away from the enigmatic signifier as the, you know, kind of complete organizing locus of our reading to also needing to think about another category, which was the open secret.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: um, and the open secret is an older category and a different one. Um, it all, and, and it, it works the, it's not that the enigmatic signifier goes away. It's not that Laplanche's account of how um, of the process by which um, the subject is formed through an encounter, an enigmatic encounter with you know a um, a, a, a an enigmatic signifier that is um, that by dint of being the child's first sort of um, intuition of adult sexuality, right? And understanding that they have run into something that they are not supposed to know about that is, you know, both shameful and ecstatic for the adult, Um, And, you know, that just kind of that that Freud so beautifully captures in the image of Oedipus, right, to see something that is clearly um, profoundly instinctually desired and to put one's eyes out for having seen it. You know, that and that kind of concentrates in the Lepagean encounter in, you know, a moment of simultaneous explosion of jouissance and self blinding, you know, that that it's just uh mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and, and, um, but what we get is so that all is still in play. But, but prior to this is a moment prior to the churches, you know, having really fully reorganized, um, Irish sexuality, and it's looking very specifically at a um, convent school, where older attitudes toward sexuality are still in circulation, and where we get to see a more um, sort of con- <laughs> confidently and 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 healthily managed. Um, acknowledgement, simultaneous acknowledgement and disavowal of um, of eroticism,
2: which is it, which is interesting in its in its balance against the country girls, where you also we get an older, you know, in the in the small the, and it's and it's anything but healthily balanced. I mean, o- older the older sort of attitude sort of sexuality in the country girls is seems to be that it's kind of open season on post-pubescent pu- post females by much older men, right? And so so the, what was, in fact, in part, uh, the burden of the famine, um, and in which ma- marriages were happening between older men and younger women, because women were valued strictly for their fertility, and men were valued strictly for their provision, um, that country girls basically pulls that thread out of Irish history and, and shows how kind of an inertia, a lingering, uh, uh, a set of assumptions around, um, uh, mating, uh, you know, actually enforces a, 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 a uh, a kind of edibilization of female sexuality in relationship to these older men. Right. And so, and so you get in country girls, you get a, a clear pairing of Kathleen's uh, father issues, which are deep traumatic and, and oscillate between desertion and, and brutal uh, uh, violence. Uh, and her relationship with a whole series of older men, right? Um, and this, this also is a taking of this, you know, th- this is, these are the middle, these are the middle two chapters, if you like, right? I mean, if Joyce is a kind of er chapter and the gathering is a kind of culminating chapter, um, the, 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 the mid-century chapters of, of, of O'Brien and, and O'Brien, <laughs> the O'Brien chapters, the O'Brien chapters, um, you know, both rely on, they both have this kind of, um, uh, the threshold, this liminal quality of 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 measuring older attitudes uh, uh, towards sexuality and how they have lingered or how they've been suppressed uh, against more the more modern ad- attitudes that are assumed in in the reader. But right. you like Tana French, so you should you should ask about that. I know that you like Tana French.
1: No, I do love Tana French, and so obviously, sort of the second half of the book right is post eu post celtic tiger and getting into the revelations about the child sex abuse scandals right so these these last three novels in particular seem to be written in a period where these are now conversations that people are having openly they're not even open secrets anymore they're just open conversations and like people are pretending to be scandalized, right? So where does where does Keith Ridgeway's long falling and Tana French's in the Woods fit in with this with this conversation and within the, the lens of the architecture of containment and all that stuff?
2: I think the Keith Ridgeway, I just want to say I think the Keith Ridgeway's one of the most important things about the Ridgeway is the idea that there can be such a thing as a participant victim. Right? That that being a victim of of whatever social ills and whatever whatever structure of social oppression might be weighing on you does not mean that you are necessarily not a participant in that system. And I think that that's that is the 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 that's what grace is all about in that novel and learning that, not just being it, but but through an identification with the ex-girl. Um, uh, and and that and that super scandal um, in in Irish life through an identification what we might call a balked identification with the ex girl an identification that simply doesn't hold and that she is that she is given to understand won't hold it won't hold precisely on the grounds that her identification is around gender and and. Th- at that level, it works, but there's another level, a generational level at which it doesn't work in which in which grace is you know the participant rather than the victim uh, and and I think that novel th- that novel really challenged what we understood as uh, a crucial part of the moral episteme of Ireland um a- at that time, which is that that there are victims and there are Predators, or there are victims, and there are perpetrators, um, and never the twain shall meet. And of course, if the culture of sexual abuse is a culture of omission, then then as well as commission, then that can't hold. There 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 has to be an understanding that that these positions within the the culture are labial, dynamic, ambivalent complicated, contradictory, what have you. Um, and that participant victimage is an important part of a cultural of sexual abuse. Yeah. That, that's, I think, important to the, one of the. Yeah. Victimages.
0: And I think that get, sets us up to get to Tana French and Enright really well, but I did want to um, take issue with just one phrase that you used, Eva, of um, pretending to be scandalized because i think that is that that is not correct either in terms of i think the what we're theorizing in the book which is that scandal is a you know it's it, I, that what's really really difficult and painful is not only are we all implicated, which, you know, is really by Enright, you know, that Enright is the most, you know, is just the, the, the great artist of, you know, of, of. It's it's not just
2: that we're all implicated. I mean, with Enright. And I think the, the the main thing with Enright, and this is we actually even announced this in the, in the book as a new epistemology of the understanding of Enright that, what is crucial about child sexual abuse is that you have fucked with the child's desiring mechanisms, not just their bodies, but their desiring mechanisms. And you have recruited, you have implicated their desire against their will. You have created this, this gap, this, this tension, this contradiction between desiring and willing. And you have basically forced in, forcibly, coercively incriminated them in something, if you're, if you're a sexual predator, you have forcibly incriminated the child in something that only you want, and that the child desperately doesn't want, but you have incriminated their desiring mechanism. Anyway, and I think that that's why... Yeah, any-
0: that, you know, that should be, I mean, just take that clip, and we should always, like, run that clip when we, um, anytime we talk about the book, because that I that think
2: that's the far end, and the most the most targeted, the, yeah. the far end of the the universal implication that Margots talking about that we're all implicated in this scandal. At the far end, at the source of the scandal, the act of child sexual abuse itself, there's already this implication of the non-perpetrator, right? Yeah,
0: and 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 I wanted to say that the scandal response then, because of all this, is hardwired. You know, it's not something like I'm not I I have my own version of it. I'm not like knowing this doesn't protect me from misunderstanding and misresponding to things. I, yeah, I, I would say it, myself. My, right. My,
2: my feeling is that if I could address Averil's mm-hmm. point about pretending to be scandalized, I, I think of it less Averill in terms of pretense yeah. than defense. That that people are scandalized as a defense against their implication in what they're scandalized about, <laughs> right? So if you're scandalized, you must this this, this it, it, you have successfully made this thing completely other to your other to yourself, right? Completely, you have completely separated yourself because you're scandalized by it. You know, it, it's being scandalized is a way of saying not me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a defense against the, the problem, which is that you know, there's a we that's operating in a culture of sexual abuse that doesn't let you kind of off the hook, you know, Yeah. Um, and scand- being scandalized is a way of getting yourself off the hook. But it's, as Margo suggests, I think it's almost reflexive. Right. I, I mean, it is, I think it is
0: it is reflexive. It's, it it's is reflexive. Because
2: at, one po- at one point, at one point, we said I, at one And right. We talked about this that the hardest truth the hardest truth that enright and enright is just filled with hard truths mm-hmm. and and I want to say this I do believe this I've said it many times and I'll say it again I think the gathering is the greatest novel to come out of Ireland since Ulysses I'll just say that okay now having said that the hard the it's full of hard truths and one of the hard truths is that There is an erotic dimension. That erotic dimension may be disgust, it may be revulsion, but these things are not non-erotic, right? There is an erotic dimension to confronting, to thinking about, to talking about child sexual abuse, right? And it's that erotic dimension that you have to distance yourself from, right? Because it's too implicating. And that, 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 that being scandalized is a way of trying to dissolve that hard truth that we can't even confront this stuff in a, from a space that's outside of our own erotic impulses and histories right yeah. that's a hard truth right and that's and that's a, and that's a hard truth i think being scandalized def, it, it works to try and defend yourself against which is why i think it is reflexive it's more difficult
0: and and that's reinforced sort of culturally and economically everything you know, by the larger symbolic order that we, um, live in. Right. Like I will say, you know, I just will put two things side by side is a a memory of when Joe and I were working on that first, you know, early, uh, Joyce's early fiction and sexual initiation article, which is really where, um, the enigmatic signifier, like the whole theory emerged out of, of that article. Um, and I have this really vivid and, um, and, you know, profoundly ambivalent memory of like being on the phone with Joe working out specifically the enigmatic signifier, the fact that adults, um, you know, sort of, have that the child is awakened by um unconscious contact with the parents um, unconscious unconscious yes Mm -hmm. and talking about that with my i think at that time it probably like i don't know three-year-old or four-year-old daughter on my lap on the phone with joe and just looking at the situation and thinking this is this is weird. Does this mean I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm doing good? Or does this mean that I am really a very sick person? You know, like, am I, you know, like, what is happening? And I still don't have an answer to that. But I can tell you that it took me a very, very, very long time for me to divorce a husband that I was very, very, very unhappy with because I live in Houston, Texas, where about three out of four family court judges are um, right-wing Republicans. And I was on record all over the place, talking openly about not just queer stuff, but about queer stuff that deals openly with these deeper issues that could easily have been used in a way that would make me seem like an unsafe parent.
2: And that use, by the way, th- th- this is the, because just to, to come back to the bu- book, because we haven't sure. talked at all about what April right. wanted, which was, she wants to talk about Tana French. The, the one thing, <laughs> but, no, but the one thing that's important, the Tana French thing. Okay. So, so the Tana French thing, I'll say this has a separate space in the book, that space all its own as well. And that space is about what we call psychopathology. Right. And and the idea of using intimacy. And and this is what what Margot's afraid of and was afraid of or understood to be a problem in her own situation coming up with with this divorce. Right. Is that intimacy can be weaponized. Right. And that that's what that that's what psychopaths. That's what we call this, the psychopathy of everyday life. And this is what the psychopathy of everyday life is about. Bartering on infant. In intimacy, I have, a, I have a, a line. I just want to read it. It's one of my favorite lines in the book. When it gets to a general level, when it gets to a collective level, the psychopathy is this. It relies on the assumption of an empathy one does not feel in order to sell plausible lies one does not believe to people one secretly loathes in the pursuit of ends diametrically antithetical to their interests and expectations. Okay, and that's what Tana, what Tana French does in in the woods is show the way in which individual psychopathic uh, relationships in which people are bartering on intimacy in order to shore up their own ego boundaries by denigrating or disposing or otherwise uh, depreciating the other, how that operates at the collective level of state formation and and economic and economic development through the use of the 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 roadway and 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 what the what the that that whole boondoggle right
0: and i would love to just throw in that that's
2: another defense though like i just want to say like being scandalized is one defense against implication another defense against implication is simply psychopathy Right, which right. is right, which is which is to to remove yourself from the situation by bartering, you know, by trading on the intimacy to to uh, uh, dispose of the other.
0: Yeah. One thing that I found fascinating and that it contributed to the you know the the focalizing of our reading of um, in the woods around. Psychopathology and its kind of broader political implications is the centrality of psychopathic figures, or at least instrumentalizing figures, in Ulysses with Buck Mulligan, in The Country Girls um, with Baba, and
2: not just Baba, but you know all those guys.
0: I know, including but the gentlemen. But Baba is like this. I couldn't put this in the book because, you know, it doesn't fit. But um, if you read Walter Mosley's novels, he has a figure named Mouse who is a, a hero um, because he is a stone cold psychopath and will kill anybody anytime. Not a problem, which is exactly what you need if you happen to be, you know, a black man in the Jim Crow South. That's who you need as your best friend. That is, you know, to be a psychopath is a kind of superpower. And I think Baba especially, and, and I do feel that um, the, you know, there's significant ambivalence toward Buck Mulligan. Buck Mulligan, one thing I'm noticing about him um, more and more is I'm not sure, even though he says terrible things all the time. He doesn't say things that aren't true. I think that uh, that almost always including that Lady Gregory is is like Homer you know I'm exploring the possibility that you know that that is meant to be you know that 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 he is used to say things that are true that Joyce doesn't really want to admit to um, but that were that, that he knows are true. Um, but uh, anyway, I think that Baba especially represents this kind of um, a f- figure who is attractive and cannot be written off because her psychopathy um, gives her license to say things that are true and license to instrumentalize a social order that otherwise is instrumentalizing her and in a one way manner. And and therefore that she is less as Joe said, you know, psychopathy is a means by which to um to kind of break that social contract that is a one-way social contract through the enigmatic signifier and the, you know, complete instrumentalization of our our fundamental sense of self
2: only in town of french it's not one way it's everybody all the time yeah yeah it, it's it's, recipro- it's reciprocal psychopathy yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, the criminals are psychopaths in this way the the, the, the cops engage in psychopathy the mm-hmm. the, the, the 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 uh Yeah. Land developers, (laughs) agents like I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a view of Celtic Tiger Ireland as 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 a phase in which the psychopathy that becomes necessary to respond to various kinds of institutional and systematic oppressions, you know, is unleashed as the the rule, the phronesis of the society, as opposed to like individualized responses. Uh, That's right. To that, and and that 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 becomes a kind of huge problem,
1: sure.
0: <laughs> say the least. Yeah, and onward to end. Right, Joe. How does how would you sort of draw a line through Tana French's representation of how ev- everything becomes coordinated, um <laughs> coordinated psychopathy, and choreograph pre choreographed pre-choreographed psychopathy into what. Um, Enright is saying, which also has to do with you know, um, with something very, very pathological and collective, but that wouldn't be as well described as as psychopathy is. I think that
2: I think that I think that Enright's I think that Enright's um, the point in Enright the 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 the, the thrust of Enright is to focus much more on the difficulty of disentangling yourself from the culture of sexual abuse, the the difficulty of witness, um, the difficulty difficulty around uncertainty as to the parameters of the sexual abuse, um, and also the way in which sexual abuse originates in family formations, whether the sexual abuse is committed by family members or not, it originates in family formations, which is why she has to make lamb, the landlord actually a person who has a relationship, a sexual relationship with Ada. She has to turn him into a family romance, right? Um, That it originates in family formations and that our ways of, of, you know, our ways of, of, of trying to resolve it tend to repeat it. Um, which is why th- I think that the importance of the sudden appearance of Liam's child, uh, the kind of creepy way in which Veronica sexualizes Liam's child under the sign of, oh, it's a child, it's a brand new day. You know, the, the whole way in which reproductive futurism um, works as a kind of cultural redemption, um, but actually is a, is a repetition of the problem because, and she doesn't, even, she's not even aware of it. Um, I think that, that, that Enright, is, is really committed to how the, the, the damage done through child sexual trauma is so unconsciously metabolized that it becomes very, very difficult to not repeat it in a variety of ways. Right. I mean, I think that that's, that's a crucial, a crucial aspect of it. Right, um, um, and so I, I, I think that that for Enright, there's no easy way out. Um, there's there's no there's no recovery um, that is that is on the horizon, uh, and I think you know even the what all of these novels do, which is to focalize our attention on the problem of child sexual abuse, and I think in all sorts of salutary ways. I think that when we get to Enright, her whole use of Brendan as this figure of disability whose institutionalization is every bit the scandal, right? And yet doesn't receive anything like the attention Right and who and and whose very poignancy in the novel involves the anonymity of the victims rather than the, the recovered individuality suggests that even even our our full-on attention our full-on advertence to the problem of child sexual abuse is not without its own not without its own consequences unintended consequences that are are you know obviously not not all that they should be. Right. And, and the, the way in which, I mean, what Enright brings us back to is why did we finally get to the point where we could do this? And one of the reasons we get to the point where we can do this is aren't these kids just like us? This is the, this is the, this is the implication, you know, we're all implicated. We're all implicated in a dynamic of identification in which, Oh, that could be us. That kid, that middle-class kid, you know, that pup, that Gurrier, that, that scapegrace like Liam, you know, he's us, right? And look at what's happening to him. That leaves the Brendans that we don't see as us, the disabled subjects that we don't see as us, that leaves them out in the cold of mass graves. And, and Enright's, yeah. You know, the thing about Enright is that I would say is she's got a brutal mind, um, she, you know, she just she's just she's unflinching. She's not going to let you off the hook, even at the point at which you have fully embraced the need to pay attention to child sexual abuse in a way it wasn't attended to and therefore allowed to proliferate. Even at that point at which we finally get we're paying attention now is, oh, yeah, but why are you paying attention? And what does you, what are the implications of your attentions here? When you weren't attending there, right? And so I think, uh, you know, I, I think that that you know, Enright is the is is she's she's a heroine of, in my view, a literary heroine of refusing to let it go, right? <laughs> just just you know, um, you know, refusing to just persisting in the the inquiry or the inquest if you like
0: would, would it be okay if i talked a little about um you were gonna ask us at the end about
1: where our work was going and i think this is sort of a good segue toward a couple things yeah yeah no so yeah i think as as we wrap up i just want to say because we've, we've taken enough of your time for the day, and obviously we could talk about this book and these themes and the implications and what people can take away for hours. But I, before we I let you go, I'd love to know what you're working on, what what projects you're going with. And Margo, why don't you lead us off?
0: Yeah, well, I just I thought about a lot of things listening to Joe talking about Enright, and I thought about the end of Gulliver's Travels and Gulliver's Horror when he realizes that he has actually been, you know, that his own body has been appropriated in the reproduction of Yahoo's, you know, Um, and which, you know, to me is just this really, really amazing kind of representation of biopolitical appropriation and the ways in which once we get biopolitical Appropriation, sort of directed along certain lines. You know how both misrecognition is inevitable, and also how even recognition, you know, doesn't um, doesn't offer any way out. Um, and I I also thought about in some recent work I did, um, on, um, Hogan's, um, Republic of shame. Is it Republic of shame? Yep. 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 Yeah. Um, fabulous, really great book. Um, very, you know, very stimulating. And, um, I, it led me to think more about the inevitability of various societies, pre-modern and modern, having to deal with um, with um, being able to, you know, sustainability, right? How many people are sustainable? And, you know, I think one of the fundamental, you know, we've got a kind of Malthusian problem here that I think is fueling the inevitability that dehumanization will continue to Go somewhere, and when we shed a light on something, we're going to, you know, other places are going to go dark. Um, and I was, I got thinking about both, you know, pre modern Irish practices of, you know, um, like fairy lore that uh allows it to seem reasonable that if you, you know, if you leave a baby uncared for because that baby would be too costly to care for because they have a disability or something that just is, you know, would be unsustainable in terms of the workload and the labor that would go into sustaining that person. So they're allowed to die. And then you say, well, the fairies took them and left a changeling. Um, and it, and I've always been interested in child sacrifice in, um, in Igbo, as represented in Igbo culture in Chinua, Achebe's things fall apart. So I went back and looked again at the, you know, the, the fact that it's women who have a predisposition to bear twins who have had to throw away, you know, set after set of twins in the bush who become the first, um, converts to Christianity. And I just had this little inkling because Achebe never says what kind of Christianity uh, is is being purveyed in that particular area of Igbo land. And I looked up where Achebe came from and I looked up who where the you know who was doing the missionary work. Sure enough, Irish missionaries. And it just it feels to me really, really interesting, right? That we have these notions still, I think, of pre-modern savagery um and abuse of children because there was this just dispassionate sense of you know one way or another like if you can't if if the group is won't keep its head above water if there are too many children or whatever you know these are our practices for dealing with that infanticide or whatever um and then the notion that modernity is so much more compassionate but what modernity is is A, vastly more ambitious, you know, um, Hogan traces out this movement into, you know, industrial modernity in Ireland, leading to these giant um, orphanages into which children were forcibly put often against the will of their parents um, and as a way of like grooming society, shaping Irish society, choosing which, you know, whose genes were, and ideas and cultural attitudes would persist. And so adoption was fine, or they could be put in orphanages where the death rate was over 50% within a year, um, and either was fine, either the babies just sort of passively died or else they got put into families that we do want that kind of ideolo- ideology and cultural identity to keep going so you can use this baby as a vehicle for that. Um, so these are the things that I'm sort of thinking about now. And I also will just say I'm working also on the ways in which open secrecy has shaped um, Joyce studies Um, because I started with the question how was it that we ever were able to read Joyce in the classroom as though he was um, you know staunchly heterosexual and staunchly you know patriarchal and normative in all these ways that early Joyceans often took pleasure in think in feeling that Joyce legitimated their shitty views and um, and what I found was that actually I think Joyce has prospered because he allows f- for two, two books, the keepings of two books, right? One being what you say in the classroom or what you say when you're giving a presentation where deans might hear your, what you say. Um, and one being the conversations that are happening, you know, among Joyceans. so there's this pleasurable sense of secrecy that is a completely different Joyce. And obviously, that is all shifted now. The, the 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 secret Joyce has now, you know, become the most important Joyce in our publishing. But for a long time, I think that's how Joyce prospered as a um, as a figure. And I think that that's really fun to think about and really interesting.
2: Um. Okay. So, I go? okay. So, what am I doing? So, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'll be, I'll be quick. I want to hear. I'm going to Ottawa to do a book event with the Irish Ambassador to Canada on Dracula and Colonialism. I am going to keynote a James Joyce and psychoanalytic analysis, one of the keynotes, uh, for the Dublin Psychoanalytic Society, um, and I am working on. Uh, Two, two co-authored pieces, one on social death in Anne Enright and one on autism in uh, Irish novels, uh, which also involve changelings, which is, is not only a definitively Irish trope, but it's also a definitively autistic trope. I mean, autistic mm-hmm. parents often say that their kids are changelings and whatnot. <laughs> um, so doing a couple of novels uh, on that. And then we, we have, um, three, three edited collections coming out. Uh, um, one is, one is about the Irish revival and using complexity theory, um, to understand the nature of the Irish revival. One is on Irish shame and one is on Joyce. Um, and that one is like, a, an honor. It's a tribute to Margaret Norris. Um and so, oh. and so they're all three coming out one after the other, boom 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 um wow. and so, and so that's that's what I'm doing right now
0: and Joe and I both have articles on lestragonians coming oh, out that's
2: right that, joy that's right
0: annual which is really cool we both wrote on lestragonians for that's the. that's right that
2: that is that is coming out and i
0: the as years. long as
2: as long as margaret brings up joy studies annual where our articles on lestragonians i do want to say that i did have an article that i'm really proud of that came out in joy studies annual last year which was called um what was it called et to bloom uh me too um uh, male masochism and the sexual ethics of ulysses so interesting um and yeah that was it that and was was
0: it. it Air ireland that had joyce in the age of trump because that's another article that deserves a plug i think jo-
2: joyce in the age of trump wow. yeah i'm doing some oh, wow. some topical topical joyce stuff or at least i have been we'll, we'll see what happens <laughs> but yeah this has been great i've really yeah. enjoyed really enjoyed this
1: i know it's well, been great you. Yeah. Thank you both for being on the show. And listeners, make sure you get a copy of Writing the Unspeakable, The Child Sex Scandal in Modern Irish Literature, if you're ready for it. If you're ready for it. (laughs) Make sure you're making
0: good progress in your psychoanalysis.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.